so tonight I want to talk about right view, or what's known as Samaditi, and we're going to talk about this all week because it's such a relevant topic, and so try to come at it from multiple angles. So I like to call this the uh, Samaditi right view, and it's called the, the sacred mystery of awareness. And that's really what we're kind of doing here, is we're really investigating, we're looking at what awareness is, what constitutes awareness, what, what's going on here. <clears throat> and I think just to back up a little bit, when we think about our lives and our world and the way that we grow up, is that we really operate on this assumption. We live our lives operating on an assumption that, that there's a world that's out there. Um, and we, or I, am an isolated individual who needs to navigate my way through this world. And my goal is to get what I want and to avoid what I don't want. And if I could accomplish that path, then I would be happy. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right. And so we all operate on this baseline assumption. It's kind of, we've been conditioned to that. That's sort of how it is. And we kind of go through the world uh, with varying degrees of success. And then we, we come to some conclusion and understanding that that's actually not going to work. Um, but if we, if we rewind back, you know, 2,500 years, 2,600 years ago, this is not the worldview of ancient India. <coughs> this is not the worldview of, of the Buddha. This is not the way that they saw it. In one text, the Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, with its feelings, perceptions, and thoughts, that there is a world. There is the origin of the world, there is the cessation of the world, and then there is the path that leads to the cessation of the world. And so the view here, the idea here, is that the world... Um, that is which really out there, the one that we conceptually kind of grasp, um, that actually what happens is we actually construct that world inside out. So the idea that there's a world out there and we need to navigate our way through it is not the way that the view was. It's not the way the Buddhists are, nor really the worldview at his time. It was really this kind of exploration of the world is constructed through the mind. And so, uh, practice, dharma practice, and really all, all, most of the spiritual practices in ancient India were uh, an exploration of what that means to be a person that is inquiring the nature of awareness. And so, what happens as we grow up, of course, we build, we build a world uh, of meaning, we build a cosmos of understanding, and then at some point we kind of, we kind of live into that. And it's so fascinating for me having a baby at home who, he, he, little coyote does not hold this view that there's a world out there and that he's an individual and needs to find his way through it. You can actually see him, it's actually, he's 10 months old now, so he's actually starting to develop preference. You know, he's starting to be like, oh, I'd rather do this than that, and if I don't want to do that, I'll make this noise, and then the humans will move me from here to there. <laughs> you know, he's like already, already being conditioned to kind of, get what he wants and avoid what he doesn't want. And so the, the exploration of Dharma 
is really this in classic investigation of um, looking at the moment-to-moment uh, experience or the moment-to-moment exercise of the mind as a process. So the mind is not a thing that exists. It's an event that occurs moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment. And so Dharma practice really is this kind of empirical science of the study of direct experience, which is really one thing that's great about coming here. You guys really have this opportunity to see your mind, the construct of your mind, sitting in the laboratory, right? This first-person direct experience of observation, this empirical science seeing how the world is constructed through the mind, observation, and that the world is really built inside out. And so what happens? You know, what actually happens when you sit down? What happens when we sit down and we close our eyes and we sit up and we start kind of paying attention? <coughs> One of the things that really I think is very poignant about all of this, and I think one of the things that actually motivated or inspired uh, the Buddha to, to kind of develop what he developed, is this kind of thing that we've all seen, but this is a really sincere acknowledgement that, that when we do sit and we just we observe, one thing, become, one thing that becomes clear for me is that there's a tendency that I actually find that I suffer in ways that seem tragically unnecessary. Sitting quietly by myself in an empty room, it's just suffering about things in, in ways that just by all evidence appear to be completely and totally unnecessary. And it's the baseline assumption is that I'm just, well, that's just because I'm just not getting what I want. And, you know, I'm getting what I don't want. And, you know, that kind of assumption that we, we run on. But the Buddha was like, you know, his, his, I think his, his whole quest was, I wonder if there's like something you can do about that. You know, I wonder if there's a way in which I can work with my experience, I can work with my awareness in a way that actually moves me away from suffering and towards happiness, freedom, ease. And so part of the acknowledgement is a kind of radical acceptance that that suffering is essentially something that I manufacture in my own direct experience based on the things that didn't go my way, the things that I didn't get what I wanted, I got what I didn't want, the world is actually not a fair place. I'm a person who lives in a world that's not fair, it's always not fair. Why is it like this? Why is it like that? Why did this happen to me? Why do things go like that? This constant struggle, this kind of fist fight with reality, that can go on for an entire lifetime. For many people, I think this goes on for an entire lifetime and there's actually no intervention that ever occurs. There's never, me and Cheryl were talking about this earlier, like, um, like just having a sense of uh, gratitude for yourself that you actually can sit in this conversation right now. A lot of people don't even can't even sit in this conversation. 
there's been that you've seen something about your experience, right? You've recognized something about about your own awareness and your own experience that you've decided that hey, I think there's maybe something I can do about this, and I'm willing to see what that's all about. And so one of my one of my first teachers, Joseph Goldstein, always tells this story that I love so much. Is he was uh, in India in the late '60s, as a bunch of Americans were, and they were sitting in these uh, goinka. Goinka is a style of vipassana. And he was teaching uh, retreats, these 10-day Vipassana retreats, which ironically is kind of what all of these retreats are based on, are these original Manindra, not Manindra, I'm sorry, uh, Goenka retreats. And uh, Joseph met this little Bengali guy named Munindraji, who was really a master of meditation. He was, a, he was trained, he was a Burmese master of meditation, he was trained in Abhidharma, Buddhist psychology, he was a very, very, very skilled practitioner. And so Joseph kind of would follow this guy around and you know, ask him lots of questions. And I think I got to the point where Menendra was probably feeling pestered by Joseph. And at one point he said to me, he said, you know what? He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. If you really want to understand what's going on here, just sit down and watch. And sit and know that you're sitting. If you sit and know that you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will reveal itself to you. That's it. And of course, he spent seven years working and practicing in this way. And that's it. It's, it, it, it isn't going anywhere. There's no goal. There's, you're not going to figure it out. Just, I know it's totally frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's not that kind of thing, right? It's, it, there's no end. There's no, there's no finish line here. There's just more. There's more exploration, there's more seeing, there's more observing right? until we finish our path, if we even do so. I, I tell this story a lot too. I feel, I feel like uh, really lucky about Dharma practice. A couple of years ago when me and Cheryl were talking about, uh, she was telling us a teacher who says that, uh, that everybody in life has luck and your goal is to figure out like where your lucky is, where your luck lies. And I've been so lucky with Dharma. I've just had the right people, the right teachers at the right time, and the right transmission. And for me, it happened to me when I, when I was 19 years old and I first went to go meet my first teacher, Stephen Smith, and I had, I had a lot of traumatic events in my life. I had a lot of loss, a lot of death. I had a lot of existential uh, questioning, um, a lot of unfairness. And, I, and even though, actually, now it could take me years to realize, but I actually had a, so many terrible things that happened to me when I was young and so many people that I cared about so deeply, like died tragically, that I actually felt shame. I was like, there has to be something wrong with me that these things would be happening. And so I lived, I really much lived, and in my mind was, I was talking about wrong view. Whatever, whatever arose in my mind, I bought hook, line, and sinker as being the way it is. Whatever bad data I got from my mind, I just, I created, I was almost like a moment-to-moment belief system. My mind would say, it's like this, and I'd go, it's like this. It's really terrible. Yes, it's really terrible. And I I just kind of lived in this constant state of anguish and frustration and feeling betrayed by the universe. You know, I met with my first teacher, Stephen Smith, I kind of told, I kind of, I didn't even know what he was. He was a Dharma teacher, he taught meditation. 
Buddhism. At this, I'm 19 years old. This means absolutely nothing to me at this point. I only went because my friend's mom, who I trusted, thought it would maybe a good idea for me to talk to this guy. And so two things happened, I think, that was really, really revealing and very helpful and really continued to help me up until this moment. It was this, this tremendous acknowledgement, just this really honest acknowledgement that suffering is a thing and that, you know, it's not your fault and the normalizing of suffering. And that actually, to some degree, there was some permission that I was sort of allowed to suffer. And also he reflected back to me that based on my experience in my life and the things that I've been through, how could I be in any other, how could I not be suffering? And so like, so, so the, heart, the heartbreak of those experiences, breaking the heart open into really this actual deep wisdom of like, oh wow. I think when we, when we really, really touch the, the, the razor, the sharp razor's edge of suffering, it can often prompt us to want to do things differently. To really question that paradigm that I, that I laid out. And then, then we went to, then the, the real mind blower was we went over to the IMS, to the meditation hall, to do some mindfulness practice. And uh, of course, it was very much like it always is. It was bring your attention to the sensations of your breath, and when you notice that your mind wanders, just recognize that and come back. And, and I was doing that little drill, you know that drill, right? The drill we all take for granted now. Uh, and I started to, and I got this massive, massive insight, this massive dharmic transmission, that there was this thing called my mind, or let's just say the mind. That there, there was this, this mind experience that I had just assumed with everything. And then I could see that there was, there was breathing, there was a sound. There was actually an exit door in every single moment out of that into something else. I didn't even know what the hell the other thing was, and we called this dharmic uh, experience. But I could see that there was a way in which I was living in the contents of my mind in this sort of prison of perception and conceptualization and meaning. And I had constructed this very elaborate, very dark, angry, you know, view. And I just lived in it. And so from that moment on, things were never the same. I continued to visit this world <laughs> repeatedly over and over again. And to some degree, this world has improved greatly. But just that understanding of like, oh, it's my mind. My mind is manufacturing this. This is actually not happening in my sensory experience. It's not happening in this room. Like all of you right now, I guarantee you, everybody in this room has some little narrative running. Right? But you also have this. And we kind of go back and forth. And I think to some degree, that's kind of what Vipassana is. is this kind of constant rack, rock, rocking back and forth. We get lost in the conceptual mind and the narrative experience, right? We recognize that, we come out back into the sensing experience of the present moment. And then we get sucked back in. We just kind of rock back and forth. Right? And the goal, of course, is we learn to live more into this and less into that. And then slowly over time, we have this gradual awakening where we just sort of live more into our lives and we live less into the conceptual understanding, the overlay that we put on it. Now, this kind of overlay that we put on our experience. And so when we think about uh, the, the Buddhist path, this idea of right view, some of the words get lost in translation. I like to use the Pali sometimes because I find it's more accurate. 
But this idea of right view or wise view, like the word right, I think is problematic. I think even the word wise is problematic because I'm not really sure what that necessarily means. But in the parlance of, of, of the Pali in, in the translation, sama, which is the word that right comes from, really actually means something like complete. Uh, but it wouldn't make sense to say complete view, complete intention, complete speech. But it's more accurate, complete, is because it's not an adjective. It's not like uh, the adjective is the view is right. It's not. It's not describing the view. It's actually more of a verbal form. It's 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 a, it's a doing. It's a, actually a task. So developing samaditi or right view is it, not a description of what we're doing, but it's actually something that we're engaging in every single moment, moment to moment, moment to moment. So we're we're we're, we're trying to do something. We're we're trying to complete a task. And of course the task is to see completely, to completely see everything, to see the whole picture. There's a whole therapy, uh, therapy, gestalt therapy, some of you might be familiar with gestalt therapy, which is this whole great therapy process that's actually completely constructed on this very idea. That in every single moment of a life, the frame, what we pay attention to, and, and the overlay we put on that, every single moment is like a little picture. And it's like, well this moment is like this, and it's like this and it's like this, and it's like this. And because the moments happen so quickly, we get a little narrative going, it's like this, my legs hurt, my legs always hurt, this retreat isn't gonna really be so great, and it's just like, we, 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 we sew this thing together. But we don't think to, we don't actually oftentimes think to even consider that the data you're getting is bogus. It's not accurate, it's probably not very helpful, but we just, we just make these assumptions. I'm like, well, if this is the data my mind's giving me, then it, this must be reality. You see yourself doing this? It's, it, I don't, we were talking about this earlier. It's so hard to not do that. Right? So when we think about complete view, there's the big picture, right? Which the big picture is, is my, the, the, the sort of general view I have about myself. The general view I have about the world. And then really a lot of that is, is determined by my, my, what do I believe? What are my beliefs about this life? What is my sense of purpose? Uh, and what is my sense of meaning? And a lot of times if we were considerate and I was to give you all a piece of paper and, and to write all these ideas down, the picture that you would portray would probably actually be a pretty good one. But if we take that big picture we have that's kind of maybe probably a good picture and we overlay that on every single moment there, there's a lot of contradiction. Especially when we start adding in things like emotions because when life gets hard, when stress is high, when emotion is high, our view and our perception gets skewed. And so we lose this big picture thing. I'm like, I'm, 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 I want to be a good person and I, and I'm doing well in the world, and, and, and I'm grateful for all these things, and it's just like, we get in this little tiny narrow frame of like, this shouldn't, this idea of this shouldn't be happening. It's like kind of the algebraic equation for suffering is, how come this and not that? If only, what if? It's like, it's like any thought that starts with those sentences, you really need to start to bring attention to that. You know, well, what if, and if only, and how come this and that, and all of these ways which we try to plead this case that 
uh, this sucks. Let me convince you. <laughs> no, hear me out. This sucks, dude. Tell me. Tell me. Tell you. I tell you a story about all the terrible things that happened today and, and why this, why I would want to plead a case that this experience that I'm in. It's almost like pleading a case that I, well, I should be suffering right now. I really should be suffering right now. And so one of the things that we, we kind of do is like on a, on a sort of secular level or like in, in psycho- psychological terms, one of the things that we can kind of do in this moment-to-moment experience is called cognitive reappraisal. So we can kind of look at a situation and instead of just going, it's like that, we can go, okay, well, how, I wonder how else I could look at this situation. And actually, one of the, the way that the Dalai Lama defines meditation is it's to become familiar with an object. Is to become too familiar with that object, and there's also another term I forget the Pali, but there's a term that we talk about, which is a meditation to look repeatedly to look at, to look at repeatedly. And so when we can pause the frame, we have to, if we can hit the pause button too bad we can't do that, but you can get the analogy. We can pause the frame and go, wait a minute, this this moment, this way I'm experiencing myself in this moment. Maybe is there a different way I could look at this. Maybe some of the information isn't correct. Right. Now we're actually investigating, we're questioning, we're challenging our minds. We're saying, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not totally sure I'm, a, I'm, I'm in agreement with you about this. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is kind of the, ap- the applied process of, of trying to create that frame that's, that's more accurate, that's more kind, that's more benevolent, that's more understanding that can take the conditions in this scenario and just keep looking at it again until, you know, until that picture in that frame is one of like, okay, I can, I can get behind this. This is, this, is, this is feeling somewhere in the arena of right. And so when we, when we practice mindfulness, when we uh, do the techniques, I say, that's kind of what you're doing. You're sitting in your... Have you noticed all kinds of weird, random things are just kind of coming up out of nowhere? And how many of those things do you identify with? Most of them? Right. Because that, that, the habituation around identification is just so strong. You know? And it creates that, that view, that moment-to-moment view. And then there's moments of liberation, there's moments of suffering. You know, if you were to track moment-to-moment, you've probably actually, whether you notice it, you've probably had many, 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 many moments of liberation today are these little, like, uh, successes, moment to moment, where you unhooked from something that was suffering or tragic or you unhooked. Did you notice you unhooked something, something today that was actually not so good to be caught up in? Mm-hmm. You had that little moment, that little moment of liberation. <coughs> and you kind of start collecting those. And then the mind begins to kind of lean in that direction. That becomes uh, a path, a neural path, actually. That becomes a possibility more times than not, just by cultivating that little, that little liberated moment. <clears throat> and so when we think about suffering, uh, 
we, we don't want to, you know, when we think about the, the grand scheme of the path, of course, one thing about Buddhism and Dharma practice that, that that's really good is there is an acknowledgement of suffering. There's sort of a radical acceptance of it. There's an understanding of it. But we, like, don't want to stay there. You know what I mean? You don't want to just, like, because uh, that can become the view, right? And I, and I think Dharma practitioners... Uh, become guilty of this. I know that I've been com- become guilty of this. There's like almost too much acceptance of suffering, and then that just becomes the view. Like, yeah, it's just all suffering, man. Like, and it can kind of become the, uh, almost even cynical. And so, when we think about the, sort of the levels of suffering in, in the in the Buddhist discourse, when he talks about the, the four noble truths, which I'll talk about a little bit here, is you know he talks about kind of there being these three. Uh, there's the suffering, the first sort of level of suffering is the suffering of, of being of birth, old age, sickness, and death. Being born into a pain body uh, that gets old, that gets sick, that ultimately dies. We all know that's going to happen. Although we have tremendous denial of that in our culture. <laughs> uh, but that's sort of part of it. Uh, there's the suffering of, of just not getting what you want. Have you noticed that sometimes you don't get what you want? <laughs> <laughs> How often do you not get what you want and go to yourself, you know what? This is just a second level of suffering. (laughs) I'm just not getting what I want right now. The Buddha was totally right. (laughs) Now, usually it's immediately followed by like, well, this shouldn't be happening right now. And then we become isolated into that. Not only am I not getting what I want right now, but I actually never get what I want. I never got what I wanted before. I'm not getting it right now. And I don't see it's not looking good for the future either. <laughs> I'm just a person who lives in a world. I'm a person who doesn't get what they want. Everybody else gets what they want. I don't get what I want. And then it's just like that. Then all the stories about how you didn't get what you wanted just kind of all, they all come rushing to the stage. And now we look for evidence to prove to ourselves that we're people who never get what we want. And that takes, what, five or six seconds? <laughs> and then the third one here is just being separated from what is dear, being separated from what we love, getting what we don't want to some degree, and having things that we... Uh, people, right, people that we care about die. Animals that we care about die. Relationships that are things that we think are going to, you know... Forever and ever. I want to be with this person forever. It's like, and then that doesn't happen. And then there's loss. And then there's, you know, how often do we have that and go, oh yeah, oh my God, I'm totally being separated from what I care about right now. This happens sometimes. No, we don't. No. We know that. Like if we wrote it down, we could put it on a little menu sheet, but like in the moment of being confronted by these things, uh, we don't see it that way. And so that's why we suffer, because there's a lack of understanding, there's a lack of view, there's a lack of something there. And the fourth one he talks about, which is, I think, so important to discuss, is, is that when we talk about this, um, this mind, that, that the world is constructed through the mind, the Buddha talks about these five aggregates, that the world is constructed through uh, these aggregates, and that's how we make sense of the world. And, and, and the world is revealed to us through these five aggregates. Forms, we have forms, feelings, perceptions, 
inclinations and consciousness, right? And it's like, you know, you should give an example, it's like, you know, just with a bell, it's like, because you have ears, you hear that sound, you might notice you have a feeling about this bell. Perception, it's a bell, you know it's a bell. Right? You know that sound of a bell, you're like, oh, I like this bell. And you think to yourself, you know what? I should get a bell like that. <laughs> Where do you get one of those? Maybe if I had a bell like this, I would meditate more in my house. I could just sit here and ring the bell. <laughs> and then the inclination, I mean, I need to get a bell. But I can't get a bell here because there's no internet. I would go on my phone and order one. I could have it prime what happened at my house when I got back to my retreat. I wonder how far up the road I got to hike to get <laughs> internet service so I can get the bell. <laughs> every moment these aggregates, they arise, and this is all happening within the arena of consciousness. Right? So when we think about kind of mind 101, it's like, there's always contact. And every object we make, every object that we make contact with, doesn't matter whether it's a physical object, a mental object, every single object that is confronted by attention, we have a feeling about it. We, we find the object to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. In every single moment, we have feelings about these objects, we have perceptions about these objects. Sometimes we know what the object is, sometimes we don't know what it is. And we have this, and we talk about someone just attitude of mind. We have an inclination, we have a stance towards every single object. We have a disposition. We're predisposed. It's what they actually call now, like a lot of work now in our culture around implicit bias. We have unknown bias towards objects. You know? Like certain things, you're like, uh, people will be like, oh, ask me about music. Oh, do you like this band? I'm like, no, I don't like that band. Well, why do you like that? I don't know. I just don't like them. I just don't like this person. I have no reason. I just don't like them. And that's the end of that. They're a bad person, and I'm going to avoid them. <laughs> you know? That's it. There's, there's a bias towards, towards almost every object. There's a little bit of a implicit bias towards that. And so the, 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 this mind arising and passing, these five sort of players in the game, uh, like the Buddha says in, in the suttas, which I love, he says, he says consciousness is like a king in his, in his entourage. And as the king of consciousness arises in every moment, he always brings his entourage. Consciousness always brings form and feeling and perception and inclination. They always arise together and pass away, and rise together and pass away. And then from that we construct the worldview, we construct the narrative. It's all being constructed moment to moment. And we largely, um, we largely buy into it. And we, we, we think it's true and we think it, it's like this. And because it arises and passes and changes so much, we actually really, it's really hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up with the show. And so when we start to think about, so he actually says these aggregates, uh, which is actually the, the, the sort of the bricks and mortar of awareness, Sort of what builds the civilization of awareness is these aggregates. They arise and pass away. Is that he says it's dukkha. It's part of the first noble truth. It, 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 in and of itself, the aggregates are suffering. 
And here suffering, not so much meaning like the way we think about suffering, but suffering actually in construction terms means breaking down. So like I used to do concrete work and sometimes we'd go look at a building and a foundation would be deteriorating and it would be need to be fixed or replaced and the engineer would say that concrete is suffering. Mm-hmm. It's breaking down. It's mm-hmm. no longer stable. Mm-hmm. Right? They use this term sometimes in, 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 in construction. And it's the same thing with our mind. It's breaking down. We're getting older. Things are changing. Things are impermanent. Everything is... It's just breaking down and breaking down and being built and breaking. It's like construction and destruction in every single moment. It's breaking down. Not suffering as derogatory, as a bad, terrible thing. In fact, actually, when we think about dukkha in the first one, which was the Buddha doesn't talk about dukkha in a derogatory tone. He doesn't talk about it as being bad or wrong. He just talks about it as being something that exists something that needs to be embraced and understood. It's something that's here. It's, it's our attitude and our perception and our inclination and our stance towards it that defines whether or not we suffer about it. That make sense? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately the ball's in your court. Or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it. And the, and the problem with this is because of this, this dukkha, what, because of the, this reality of, of dukkha, of this constant kind of breaking down, what happens is, is, is the word usually is tanha for craving, but really the term in, in the Four Noble Truth is um, upad, not upadana, um, doesn't matter what it is, I forget, but it's craving, it arises. So because things are difficult, because things, what arises is this reactivity towards it, this, this wanting to get it, this wanting to get rid of it. And so what happens is, is, is we, we uh, this, this, this is constantly arising and this is really where we actually do suffer because we cling. We, we think, it, we, we, we don't want it to break down. We want it to be stable. We want it to be certain. We want it to be dead easy. We want it to be clearly laid out. You know, that's what we want. We want certainty. We want to know for sure. Is this going to work out? If this isn't going to work out, I don't want to do it. Then we should have been born into a body then. Mm-hmm. You screwed up last time around, but well, you're here again going through the whole process. You know? It's so frustrating. So, even in, in these four, Stephen Batchelor, one of my favorite teachers, talks about them as being tasks again, something that needs to be done. It's dukkha, this, this, these aggregates, they just need to be understood. They just need to be recognized and embraced as this is, these are the building blocks of awareness. These are what's happening. I need to acknowledge that. I need to recognize that. I need to let go of the craving and the clinging that I, uh, that I put onto that. That reactivity is probably the word that's the most useful. We, we, we get reactive towards these things. Mm-hmm. And once we get reactive, that usually turns on the mental proliferation and the thinking about, and I need to get rid of this, and I need to get that, and I need to fix this, and I need to fix that, and it'll do a whole bunch of things I need to fix. And actually, then we cut off from our direct experience. We're actually not in the present moment experience anymore. We're in some conceptual realm of fixing and controlling and having and getting and, and all of that. Right. You've been in there before? Mm-hmm. Right. And then that goes on for however long that goes on for. We get spit out the other side 23 minutes later when they ring the bell at the end of the meditation. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> It was never happening in the first place, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I can get back to 
Maybe walking back and forth isn't so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the alternative, this whole retreat business, all of a sudden the shaved head and the brown robe start looking kind of good, don't they? <laughs> you know? And so when, when we have, so then we have this wake-up moment that I talked about earlier, like this kind of this awareness, you know, am I aware? What am I aware of? That's really the third noble truth. That's that, that uh, Nibbana that I just talked about, the cooling off. The removing of, removing of the flame of the greed, hatred, and delusion. The reactivity is cooled down. We're not getting hooked into those things. And in that space of awareness, in that presence, that ease, then what actually immediately follows that is the fourth noble truth. And, and it, which is, what immediately follows that moment is, is, is right view. Or probably for most of us, right-ish view. <laughs> Pretty good. But there's, more, it's more, there's a more complete understanding. We're seeing things more completely in that because we're not caught in the grips of, of, the, of the craving and the clinging and the wanting things to be different and, and wishing it was like this and wishing that didn't happen. We're not in that. We've, sort of, we've, we've moved beyond that into this other space of awareness where there's choice and there's possibility and there's uncertainty, but it's not a bad thing. It's just actually a real thing. There's possibilities... And then we can kind of we, we learn when we learn to live in that space. That's really we, we want to. That's where we want to live. We want to live in that space. Right? This is why we cultivate all these qualities. We want to incline the mind to learn how to live into that space. And that's kind of the beginning. And then what do we do from there? Then we have these other eight, these other path factors to cultivate. But now we're in, now we're actually in the game. Because we've, you know, we, we haven't understood these truths as these noble truths with a capital T, but we've just noticed these as parts of the brick and mortar of awareness, right? We've done it enough of times that we know we know the little con game of the mind, and we and we don't get we don't get caught up in that so much. We just kind of live into this third noble truth. We live into this, and then what happens is this this complete view, this this right view, this way of seeing just becomes more and more and more available and that begins to guide our intentions and our actions and our speech and our, everything that we do. Everything that we do is born out of that space. And then the possibilities are endless. And so when we think about this, There's more to it than that because, you know, when we think about the levels of, of, of the path of kind of the Dharma understanding is that the first one is conceptual. And so a lot of times we, maybe when you, maybe you got interested in the practice because you heard a podcast or maybe you read a book or a friend turned you on to something. You heard about Dharma, you heard about Buddhism and something about it conceptually sort of just made sense, right? You're like, well, I didn't know about this thing. I don't, well, tell me more. And so there's a conceptual understanding of what's happening here, which is actually really good and really, really valuable, but it's not enough. So all of these ideas and all the lists and all of the ways in which we think about the Dharma conceptually is really good because it can motivate us to actually start to apply it, which is the second level of training. So we take the concepts, we understand them conceptually in the mind, and we make sense to us. It makes enough of a sense to give it a shot, Right? And then, and then it's the application. We start to apply that. And that's actually really what this whole retreat experience is. This is application. You've, you've put aside your, your, your craving and aversion and your, and your 
your regards to the world where we're not really in the world so much here of the out there we're in this shared experience of investigating our mind moment to moment and so we're, we're doing all this application which is actually the work it's the elbow grease of Dharma practice it's the being in the hot sun planting the seeds it's, it's the work and I think you've known you guys have been sitting all day it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of work right? and even that's not enough so there's the conceptual understanding there's the application and then there's the fruition and that's sort of like that's the, the right view understanding it conceptually and then the end of the right view is like not not, not necessarily also understanding it conceptually, but knowing it in your DNA, like yes, this is this is this is right for me. And those those fruition moments, it's that kind of seed and fruit analogy I talk about sometimes. Sometimes you get to plant the seed, sometimes you get to eat the fruit. And the only way you're gonna go from the seed to the fruit is all the application, is all the elbow grease, all the work that you're doing here. And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or whether it makes sense or it doesn't, whatever your experience is to some degree is somewhat irrelevant. But the fact that you're applying these things, the fruition will come. Like you can totally have a garden, right? You can plant a garden. You can hate the whole experience. I hate having to water. I hate having to weed. You can totally have an unpleasant experience the whole time, but you're still going to have cucumbers and tomatoes in a couple months. You're going to get the fruit. So that's kind of fair. <laughs> but we also can adjust and change our attitude along the way. And so then when we look at the, the, the path again, we also have to acknowledge that this is not an intellectual game. This is not about being smart or clever. It's about actually really feel a samadhi panya. So a huge component of right view or samaditi is ethics, is sila, which I think a lot of people have missed the boat on that one. It's that, when we think about our practice being embodied, it's that part of the stance that we take in our practice is to live a life of harmlessness. Understanding how deeply intertwined our lives are and how much of what I do and say affects other people and understanding that how much of my suffering has been a result of something that somebody did or said to me. I am taking this radical stance of, I'm going to do my best to not contribute to that. I'm going to do my best to not add to the suffering of this world through my actions and my deeds. And that, that's a view, that's, a, that's a, a perspective. That's not really negotiable. When we think about karma, you know, when we cause harm, you know, it, it creates suffering for ourselves and other people. So this is why we emphasize so much around uh, this attitude of the mind, this Cultivation of forgiveness we talked about today. This cultivation of our own basic goodness. And really a lot of it is just this recognition that all of us have this really beautiful, wholesome desire to be free. If you didn't, you would not be here. People who are kicking tires in Dharma practice don't come sit seven-day retreats. They maybe go to a weekend workshop or a drop-in class once in a while. But this is not for the faint-hearted. And so there's this recognition of like, and, and a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit for that, which is such a tragic set. You know, we, we, we're, we're so, as our culture, we're so mindfulness heavy 
the mindfulness, 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 that we forget. We don't give ourselves credit for the fact that we are people who live with integrity and that we, 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 we live a life of harmlessness and we, we live a life of honesty and, we, and we're trying to create positive change in the world. I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I find that for a large portion of people who practice, that we don't give ourselves credit for that so much because we want to get good at the meditation thing. It's such a, such a trap. And then from that sila, from that foundational practice, uh, then we can kind of begin to start training the mind, which is really what we're doing here. We're applying effort and concentration and mindfulness and effort and concentration and mindfulness in every single moment. Cultivating the mind, cultivating the mind. And if the seal is not good, uh, the cultivation is, is not going to do what needs to be done. As the Buddha says in one sutta, it's really hard to meditate after a long day of murdering and killing and stealing. <laughs> you just feel so bad about yourself. Imagine that coming home from a hard day's work of being a terrible person and you know, murdering and killing and stealing and burning down people's villages and then having to sit with yourself. Think about that when you, you ever do make a mistake during the day and go home and practice and it just eats you alive. Probably a good idea to avoid those kinds of behaviors. So when we purify, I don't like that word so much, but, but when, we, when we purify our, our karma, our actions, and our sila, when our sila becomes strong, our actual meditation becomes strong as a result of it. I have very little, I have very little regret arise in my mind these days. I, I actually have a hard time thinking of anything I've done in the last year that I actually feel that terrible about. Of course, it's not always been true for me. <laughs> I, I just don't, you know, I don't really do that kind of stuff anymore. So it doesn't arise in my mind. And all of a sudden my practice becomes it's a lot easier because, because it, it's being guided by this seal, this, this sense of goodness. Mm-hmm. And then the outcome of that, is, it, the wisdom is the outcome of that. It's, it, in the list, it's seal of samadhi panya, even though the list starts with right view. It's like, you know, when our integrity and our discipline and our ethics to our own values and to our own meaning and purpose, not trying to ascribe to some sort of dharmic rule list, because we all, we all have different values and we have to respect and honor those. When we start to get in line with that and we start to practice that, then the wisdom arises in a way where we just, we just know. It becomes almost intuitive, and that's a word I don't use often. So that we just sort of begin to start to know, like, don't do that. And this isn't like an end some game. This becomes a, a sort of, you could maybe even say, a sort of positive feedback loop for living. Like where that, that's where we, we cultivate that way of being. And this is really what it is. It's a life, I think the Eightfold Path is essentially kind of a lifestyle. I call it this liberation-based lifestyle. Like I, I tried it, I, and I've been doing this for years, and I still continue to do it. I've tried very hard to build a lifestyle for myself that supports these things, like very intentionally. You know, that's one of the reasons me and my family, me and my wife, Shannon, we, we, we left Los Angeles, and, and we moved out to rural Colorado because we wanted to, uh, you know, I've always been an environmentalist. I worked for Greenpeace for years. I was like, I just, you know, I got to the point where I was like, if I buy one, and I'm buying three plastic Starbucks cups a day, and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm just, I'm like part of the, I'm destroying the planet, you know, it's like, 
you know, there's that kind of consumer. Like, I, I, I want to be in a position where I don't have to do that so much. You know, like they wanted to not have to, you know, cough up $12,000 a month so we could live in a rented house in Pasadena. It was like, I want to be able to not need that much money. I mean, I, I mostly live and, and work on, on Donna and generosity, and, and, and I feel like out of integrity to ask people to support my livelihood if I'm, like, squandering money. And we, we, we grow a lot of our own food. And this is, for us, this was, an, you know, it took a long time, and, and a lot of this, Eightfold Path is it's, it's really the long game. It's kind of this delaying the gratification. And I see a lot of students do this, and I really, help, I really love working for people who start to kind of get that, of like, oh, this whole Dharma thing, it's not, just sitting, it's not just sitting 20 minutes a day on a cushion. It's actually the whole way in which I operate through the world. Right? And then that, unfortunately, it comes a lot of times with very hard choices. We oftentimes have to let go of people, places, and things because they no longer serve us. Right? And one thing about Fila that, I, that I've noticed <coughs> that's a little bit of a bummer and also, uh, also really gives us, it's given me a lot of a sense of integrity, is that a lot of times I have to sacrifice peace of mind in favor of being in integrity. Because a lot of times it's just easier to do things that are not so great conflict with other people, leaving things that are important. It's like, I know, I, a lot of times I choose, I'm like, man, I'm going to really suffer over this for six months at least, but I really actually need to do this. Right? So even in this whole quest of trying to use mindfulness in our meditation practices to cultivate a peace of mind, sometimes we actually have to make choices in our life that are actually going to have some kind of sacrifice on our peace of mind in the short term. And that's good, though, because that builds resilience. And we're like, oh, actually, I can make hard choices. And so the beautiful thing about Samaditi, I think, is it's like, it gives us the opportunity to, like, it's like the camera. It's like, we can go as panoramic as you want to. The big picture, what do you really want for yourself? What are your values? What is your sense of purpose? What do you really want for yourself in this world? Right? focusing on the end and coming right down to the to the moment to moment line like right in this moment of view are those two aligned and that's the hard part I think about this is trying to, to is, is the alignment and a lot of times it's like we have our you know we have our big picture maybe looking well but because the moment-to-moment experience is sometimes challenging and unpleasant, we start questioning the bigger picture. And then again, we see we're so dictated by that pleasure-pain dichotomy, aren't we? We're so dictated by that assumption that I'd be happy if I got what I wanted. And I'd be happy if I avoided what I didn't want. And we start to believe really quickly that that's true. And then we kind of, we, 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 we lose that that beautiful way of seeing things. And really, I think when we start to think about Buddhist psychology and these cultivation of awareness and loving kindness and generosity and forgiveness and all these sort of beautiful mental states, it's really trying to cultivate this beautiful mind and seeing the world through, through the lens of, of, of a beautiful mind rather than the preferential mind. And then we can we can do this. This is 
the Buddha said it quite a few times that if it did, if it could not be done, I would not ask you to do it. And then the way we experience uh, our awareness becomes completely different. So there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of potential. Really, I think the sky is kind of the limit here with all of this. It's just a matter of that. Um, part of it, part of seal, I think, is, is our commitment to our integrity, which implies a sense of discipline, which a lot of us don't like so much. I don't know if the discipline's not my favorite term. But it, it, it's, a, it's a commitment to my sense of integrity and purpose, and a commitment to my willing to actually continually become familiar with the parts of my mind that I don't really want to see and my willingness to, to question the data that I'm currently getting. Just downloading this crappy data from the dark corners of my mind and being like, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure everything's just not good. And so the great thing about this, I think that's also encouraging, is like, this is really kind of the seed, the right view is sort of the seed and the fruit. It's like where we start and it's where we end. And one thing that Joseph Goldstein says a lot, I think that's really important that I'll end with, is that there's a lot of confidence, actually, that can come from this right view of the Samadhi. Because if, if, if we know where we're going, and we know the process to get there, then we're going to get there. Right? If you have a map you're very likely to get to your destination. All you have to do is follow it. But if you're aimlessly, blindly driving around, not only are you not going to get anywhere, but you actually might get further and further away from your destination. And so I found it to be, uh, Dharma has been a tremendous source of trust and confidence and faith for me in my life because I, I get a sense of, I kind of get a sense of where this is going. And I've gratefully done enough of application to actually, I got some pretty good data to suggest that it's actually going to happen that way. And in the, in the Buddha says oftentimes that, you know, that there's two ways that people go about. There's this perpetual wandering, which is kind of this assumption that we operate on if I just got what I wanted. And that perpetual wandering, just hoping for the best. Or this slow, gradual cultivation that that actually uh, leads to a destination. And the seed and the fruit are, are really the same things. The only difference is actually the work that we do along the way. So you guys are really in a great opportunity to have uh, thousands and thousands of moments ahead of you still that you can actually really... Uh, progress and move and question and just inquire and just remember that you know this you know you're not going to figure it out you're not going anywhere it's just that constant willingness to practice with whatever conditions are arising and not letting your preference to those conditions dictate whether or not this is going to work or not so that's what I have for you this evening thank you for your kind attention and let's just sit for a moment before we head out.